The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church in Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Uh, good to see you guys today. My name is Amanda. I'm one of the staff here also, and I get the privilege of sharing on my most favorite topic um, because it's something that God has made me more and more passionate about as I've continued in my faith journey, and that's about missions. And when looking at this topic, there's a million things, uh, kind of dorky things I would want to share with you of statistics and facts and strategies and what the best type of foreign missions are and what's most effective and what's not effective and, and all of that. But that might be a conversation for a group of people who maybe are already sold on missions. So uh, we'll save that for another day. But uh, really, what I'm really after as I've been praying about this is to find the heart of God because you heard uh, from Doug and Pat White in the video that they're passionate about missions. And you're hearing from me that I'm passionate about missions, but we didn't always start off that way. It took us going through our own faith journey and different encounters and hearing different messages and hearing from God to become uh, someone who is excited about what God is excited about in the world of missions. And so I don't know where you're at today. So the goal is that we would look at God's word and we would discover what his word says and his passion and, and that you would be moved by that. And that hopefully also we would learn a few practical tools in studying his word to really discover who God is and to see the Bible through a different lens. So that's, that's the goal today. And of course, we'll hear some, some stuff about missions and give you some practical ways to participate. So uh, that's, that's kind of what we're doing. But before we get into that, as I said, um, you know, our faith journeys are very much shaped um, by what we go through in life, and we hit these different markers. And um, in my life right now, I'm in a unique season, as you can tell. I'm pregnant. I'm seven and a half months pregnant, and North and I uh, will be having a baby girl, they tell us. There should be a picture of her eventually. She's really cute. Yeah, there she is. Anyway, um, so partly I'm showing you this just because I'm really excited. Um, but the other part is, is there something real that has happened in this season of my life um, as God does that in the different seasons of our life? And so um, I've always known I wanted to be a mom, and it's been a no-brainer, like, when I'm a mom, I'm going to love my kids. I'm going to love them so much. I love kids as it is, not a shocker. So as I've hit this point, and I've experienced this just amazing, incredible love, people warn me, it's not even like what you can imagine. It's greater than anything else. And, and sure enough, it's true. And so I'm not surprised by that. That doesn't shock me because people warned me, and I, I've always imagined that. But what has surprised me and what has been most powerful is when I've started to discover why that love is there. You see, when we look at um, other people in our life, other relationships or our job, uh, we can pinpoint certain factors of why we love it. So if I were to say, hey, why did you, why did you marry your spouse? Why do you love them? You would, you would tell me some things. You might tell me a characteristic about them, or you might say, they've done this for me in my life, or they helped rescue me, or they, you know, have, um, whatever. They're a really giving person, but you have a reason that you chose them, a reason that you love them based on things that they've done and who they are and your relationship with them, or your job you might be able to tell me why you just love your job. You might have like, a, you know, a hundred reasons. You, you might have a hundred reasons why you don't. But looking at why you do love something, most of the things in our life we have a reason for and we can define it. And when looking at this idea of having this child, I began to think, she hasn't done anything yet. She hasn't done anything that I can say, oh, it was so beautiful. She took her first step. I was so proud. Or, oh, I'm learning. She's just such a caring, patient child or whatever she'll be. I don't have, she hasn't done good work, so there's nothing of merit to define my love for her. 
And as I was thinking and pondering that, it was just this realization that I love her just because she's mine. Whether you, you have your own child or you adopt or you foster, when, when this child is yours and placed into your care, there's something special that happens and they don't have to earn your love. In fact, they could have done everything opposite uh, that might not earn love, but you love them because they're yours, because God's entrusted them to you. And so what was interesting to me is it's not my love for her that has been so powerful, but it's the understanding of why I love her that has really um, inspired me and challenged me. And I think life is like that for all of us. If we look at anything that happens in life, say uh, you ha- you're supposed to meet someone at Starbucks and they're late. Um, being late, yes, that's a problem. There might be consequences to that. But what matters more, that they're late or why they're late? Let's be honest. Were they late because they were in a car accident? That changes things. Were they late because they had a family emergency? Or were they late because they're a really bad planner? And so your reaction and your response is more to the why than it is to the what. Same thing if a baby's crying. The fact is the baby's crying. But what's bigger than that? Why are they crying? Are they wet? Are they hungry? Are they sick? Are they in pain? It's the why that matters. And I think it's the same when we look at God and the word of God and the things that God has done, the things he will do. It's great to examine that something happened or that God has promised something. Those are great But when we begin to ask the question of why did God say that? Why did God do that? Why does he promise that? That can be the more fascinating and more powerful answer because it lets us know what he is passionate about when we find out why he does something. So that's the goal today. We're going to look in just a moment at a passage of scripture. And we're not going to look to discover all the intricacies historically of what happened. But we're going to look and ask the question, why did this happen? Why did God respond that way? Why is this part of history? Why is this in scripture? And hopefully we'll discover a bit more about God's character um, through that. Before we get into that, though, there's three kind of concepts or words I want to break down a little. Uh, You've probably heard of these, but everyone kind of has a different perspective. Depending on where you're at in your faith journey, um, you might view these different. And I know in my faith journey, these are constantly changing ideas of, of I begin to see them more fully or differently. And so I want you to know what I'm saying when I say these, what I mean, and hopefully these will give you maybe some insight, maybe that you haven't heard before, because they were very insightful to me. So we're going to cover three things. The first one is the Bible. When I talk about the Word of God, or about the Bible, there's so many ways to perceive the Bible, but the Bible is much more about God than it is about people. And that can be hard to grasp because so often we use the Bible as a tool to deal with our own personal concerns or our own trials. And not that that's bad, but that is not the overarching picture of the Bible. It is God's grand, great story. Uh, A lot of people have said it's, it's like a life manual or instructions for our life, or maybe you see it as a history book or a religious book or a compilation of uh, biographies of different people's lives. And the reality is those are, those are true, but bigger than that is it's God's story. He is at its center, and he is at its core, and it's about him. It's not about us, and it's not about history, and it's not about people. It's about him from the beginning to the end. So even though we learn story by story and tend to apply it to our personal concerns, I want to open our minds, and as we look Um, Look at God's story. Look at him as the central character, the reason it exists, and, uh, and be changed by that rather than what we can just extract for our daily living. It's not the story of mankind. It's God's story. 
Now, the other thing that's interesting about the, about the Bible is it tells us about the beginning of time, and that's very fascinating, and it tells us about creation, and, and it tells a lot of history, and we can tend to think it's just a closed book, that was that portion of time, but the other thing the Bible does is it tells us what's going to happen in the end. It has things that are called prophecy in it that says this is what the end picture will look like, and that hasn't even happened yet. So we have to keep in mind that although the Bible may be complete in and of itself, that more isn't physically being written and added That God's story is not finished. And God's story is not complete. So he gave us the beginning, and he gave us a bunch of the middle, and he said this is how it's going to end. But if we view it as his story, we have to remember it's still happening. You and I, right now, currently are part of his story. So when once again we're looking at the Bible, let's not separate it, but let's remember it's his story. And we're invited to be a part of it. The second thing I want to look at is the word glory. I've heard this word, I hear people say, glory, glory, don't really know always what they're meaning, honestly, that's me. I didn't grow up in the church, maybe there's some underlying thing that one of you can tell me after service, but there's a lot of ways that people use it, and that's fine, or we say, we want to give glory to God, or, you know, there's a lot of ways, but what does that mean? To me, it just seems like a synonym for worship. Uh, But I want to look at what the author meant when they said it. So the Hebrew word for glory actually means heavy weight or substance. And it is used to express value, importance, honor, but at the same time, brilliance and radiant beauty. So I was thinking of this, and when there's times in scriptures, and the reason I'm saying this is because we're going to hit some scriptures where God is saying he wants glory for himself. And I'm thinking, does that mean you want people to sing to you? Do you want people to say, hey, you're a really good God? What does that entail? But when you look at the meaning of glory, uh, the actual literal meaning in the Hebrew is starts with heavy weight or substance. And so, and then it goes on to the character, the characteristics. And so, what it really means to give God glory is to acknowledge Him in His fullness, the weight of who He is, with all the value that truly exists. He's good and powerful and all knowing, and He's perfectly just. He will bring perfect justice, but He's perfectly merciful and full of grace. All these aspects of God, when you recognize Him for who He truly is, that is giving Him glory. When we give him due credit for what he's done and who he is and what he's doing, that is giving him glory. So keep in mind, when he asks for glory, he's not saying, hey, just sing my praises, talk about how awesome I am. He's saying, please see me for all that I am. Recognize the weight of who I am. Give me due credit. See my place. So when he demands it, and, and when he asks for it, it's not just about him. It's, it's evidence that we have seen him in his fullness. The, uh, the, last, uh, the last one that I want to talk about is the word worship. And this one, of course, uh, I often associate with music. That's how we practice worshiping God a lot in our church. But worship is so much bigger than that. And so uh, worship is not only does it delight God and please God, but it reveals God. And it fulfills his love for people by bringing them to a place of highest honor before him. And so what that saying is, the obvious, it pleases him. Yeah, God is happy when we sing to him, and it makes him maybe feel warm and fuzzy. I'm not sure. But it's a positive experience for God. He's happy. He's pleased with us. But that's not all that worship is. Because when we interact relationally with him, and we worship him and give him the glory and honor he deserves, it reveals to us who he is. 
As I sing to him and I tell him, you are worthy, you are love, you, are, um, you won't relent like we sang this morning. I am declaring who God is and I'm doing that in a context of relationship. So not only am I pleasing him, but it's revealing to me who he is. And the last part about worship that I almost never think about is that it's not only God's plan to be worshipped, but it's God's plan that the world would know his love for them. That is part of God's plan. And so when he gives us the highest honor of entering personally into a relationship to be before him and worship him, that is fulfilled. We're getting to experience his love. And so you see, worship is not a mere act that pleases God, but it's a relational dynamic where he sees us and we see him and we're blessed by it. And that is part of the vision and goal of worship. So keep this in mind when God says, I want glory and I want worship. He's not just talking about things for himself, but he's talking about a full understanding where we meet him and we know him and he knows us and we're in relationship. And he gets due credit for who he is and what he does. So keeping those things in mind, we're going to go ahead and dive into the story in a moment. And like I said, the goal and the hope is that we would discover what God is passionate about based on what he says he's passionate about and based on what others of that time recognize he is passionate about. It can change over time. We can morph it and say God is passionate about answering all of our prayers because he doesn't want us to suffer. While that may be true, um, I need to hear what God says he's passionate about because that may be incomplete. That may be through our own lens. So let's find out what he's passionate about. And I want to start with a quote, a friend of mine who uh, is a missionary in the Middle East. I can't give his full name um, because the work he's doing is illegal there. Um, But this is what he says about getting to know the passion of God. Getting to know the passions of God, the God of the universe, will stir your worship for him, change the way you view the world, and restore your soul to the depth and breadth of the ocean-sized vision of the God of the Bible. And so the hope is, if, if you have already experienced this God, that you'll be stirred to worship in a new way, and you'll be refreshed. And if you're in the beginning of your faith journey, that you might be being introduced to him in a new way for the very first time. And you might take a new step. So the story we're going to look at today is the story of Moses and the Hebrew people and them being set free in Egypt. Hopefully, and some of you have heard this story. I know I, I heard the story even really before I decided to follow Jesus. If you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, that is this story. I love the animation. You should check it out. Um, but this story is fascinating because for me, for a long time, it was an interesting story And I viewed God as this great humanitarian who saw suffering, and he went in to to relieve people from their suffering because he's such a loving God that he doesn't want people to hurt. But that doesn't always pan out because there's a lot of people hurting in the world, and God still has to be good somehow. And the other part of the story really bothered me because there's these awful plagues that he does to the Egyptians, and I would wonder, well, God, don't you love the Egyptians? I don't understand. And so for me, this story changed when I was challenged to ask the question, not what happened, not what did God do, but why did he do it? Why did he set them free? Why were there plagues? Why did those things happen? And now the story has actually fueled my life passion, my life mission. And so hopefully you'll be challenged. Um, If not by the story itself, you'll be challenged to look at the Bible in a new way. So we're not going to read the whole story because I have a bunch of other scripture. Remember, we're looking for the why today more than the what, but I will give a quick breakdown in case you're not familiar with this story. 
So the Hebrews were um, enslaved by the Egyptians under cruel, terrible conditions, working, working hard for the Egyptians. And Moses was a Hebrew, but as a baby, he was adopted by the Pharaoh. So he lived in disguise. Everyone thought he was an actual Egyptian, although he was a Hebrew. Um, but he didn't have to do what the Hebrews did, and he lived in royalty. So God came to him and said, Moses, the time is now. I'm going to set my people free, and I want you to be the instrument, the person I use to set them free. And you can imagine the predicament for Moses, because these are kind of his people, and God's kind of talking to him, but he has to go ask his dad, who's like, you know, the Pharaoh, and, you know, creating all this torture. So he does. He approaches his dad. He approaches the Pharaoh, and he says, this is what God told me. I want you to set uh, the Hebrews free. And, of course, Pharaoh's like, I'm not going to set all my slaves, all my workers free, you know, person of power. So he declines. So what happens is God sends these horrible plagues one after another that affects the Egyptians to try to convince them to let his people go. And they resist and resist, and, and terrible things happen. I won't go into all of them, but it really bothered me. For a long time. Um, so maybe a little. Anyway, point is, God does this. This is true. We can't ignore this about God. This is true. It's in scripture. And so um, eventually, Moses and the Hebrews escape, but not short of a miracle. So they're trying, they're in the process of escaping, and they have the Red Sea in their way, and God does this miraculous thing, and he parts the sea, and the Hebrews uh, and Moses get through, and the sea closes in on the Egyptians, and they're set free. Voila. And that's, that's the story in a nutshell, leaving out a lot of important details. But that's the story, because remember, we're not studying the what today, we're studying the why. And so uh, this story, like I said, it's kind of like, God's a great humanitarian, good job, yay God, going to kind of ignore the awful plagues. And that's kind of how I dealt with it. Um, but now, asking the question of why, we're going to look at a few passages and be looking for the answers more than what's actually happening. Why did he set them? Why did he even set them free? And why the plagues? Those kind of questions in your mind. So let's go ahead and um, see what the Bible says. And by the way, I think there's two, in my personal discovery, I find two answers to the question why. Um, and we're going to spend a little time on the first one here. In Exodus chapter 9, 13 through 16, this is actually in the story. This is God speaking to Moses. Pay attention for phrases like, so that, or that they, that means, hey, this happened for this reason, so the why is coming, just a little hint. Okay, so it says, then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that... Uh, you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So I found this fascinating when I read this because according to me, God, the great humanitarian, the, the why answer would be because I really love you and you're suffering and I really just don't want you to suffer anymore. I want you to be free to do what you want. That would be the answer of the God I was perceiving, but that's not what we find at all. So to the question, why let them go? Why free the people? God says, so that they may worship me. They may be free to worship me. And remember, how we defined worship. God says he'll send plagues. Why will he send plagues? So that they would know that there was no one like him in all the earth. 
God raised the people up for a purpose. Why? To show his power so that his name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So I'm seeing a trend here, not so much about the people, a bit more about who God is and a bit more about the world knowing who he is. Next uh, passage in Joshua 4, 23 through 24. And I'd like to note, this is not the, the passage in that story itself. This is Joshua later commenting on the story. So that is what God says his reason is. And now we're going to look at what other people close in that time frame said also was God's reason. So this is what Joshua says. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea. When he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. That's the what. Next passage, uh, verse 24, this is where the why comes in. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know uh, that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so they might always fear the Lord your God. So not only does God say my reason is so that people will know my power and my greatness and my goodness and who I am all over the earth. Not only does God say that about himself, but others that know say that about him. And that's a a good testimony. Anyone can say anything about themselves. But other people recognize this. Psalms uh, 106, 8 through 9, referring to the same story. Yet he saved them for his name's sake to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea and dried it up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. So we've discovered the answer to the the first why answer, that God did these things, that he even set them free and why there were plagues. And the answer is that his name would be known among all nations, among the whole world, that they would know his power. And you see, back in those times, you had all these people groups, and they all had their own gods that they worshipped. And he was the God of the Hebrews, and he wanted the whole world to know that the God that the Hebrews followed He is different. He is different than the other gods. He is more powerful. He is more great. That was his number one goal. But I believe there's another reason that he took the Hebrews through this process. And I believe that this reason really is applicable to us. It's good to acknowledge that God wants his name known. But what does that mean for us? And I believe God answers that in the second answer of the question why. In Exodus 19, 4 through 6, this is what it says. This is God talking. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So what is God saying in this passage? There's a few things he's saying. The first thing he's acknowledging is like, hey, remember I rescued you. Like on eagle's wings, you know, you were enslaved, you're not enslaved anymore, so I rescued you. I took you out of slavery. And then he says, now that you're free, if you fully obey me, then this thing will happen. Then there's this thing. So you were enslaved, now you're free, so now you can fully obey me, and then this thing will happen. So what is this thing? He says, you will be for me. Not for our own pleasure, but for God, a kingdom of priests. And to me, when I first read that, I'm like, okay, so what? What does that mean? I don't, I don't know. I don't see a priest. I don't understand. 
That's just my thinking. But when you look at the the role of a priest through scripture and still plays out um, in certain churches today, the role of a priest was someone who knew God and tried to live a holy and righteous life before God. And they were the mediator between man and God. So someone else, you had a prayer need or you wanted to confess sin, but you felt far from God. This mediator uh, would go and speak on your behalf to God. And in the Bible, it says that Jesus was our final high priest. So to give you a picture of that, you have God, this perfect, holy, good, powerful God on one side. And you have mankind who is so separated from our own sin and and from the bondage that we're in. And we can't even see him and we're so distracted. And there's this gap. And God sent the person of Jesus, his son, to mediate, to stand in that gap and speak to God on our behalf. He came in the flesh so that we might be able to receive him. And then he said, uh, I'm going to show you my father. He was the middle man because he knew the father intimately. So what I believe God is saying in this passage is, hey, look, I, I set you free so the world would know who I am to make my name great. But I set you free so that you could live in obedience to me. And so that you could become the mediators for me and those that are lost. I believe that's the message that God gave them. And they did that. They began to be mediators. And they had a lot of struggles doing that through their history, which we won't go into. But as we are set free in our own lives, whether it's from um, addiction or a history of family things or physical illness, whatever we're set free for, it's not just because God is this great humanitarian and he doesn't want you to suffer That's true about God. He does not want suffering. And in the end, there will be no suffering. But he sets us free for a purpose. He sets us free so we can live a new life where we're capable of being obedient because we don't have the baggage in the way. And in that obedience, he says, guess what I want you to be obedient to? Remember how my goal is to make my name great so that everyone can know me and honor me and worship me and see me for who I am? Guess what? You're free now to go tell other people. You're not free now to go live your own life. You're free to join my mission and my cause. And that is something worth living for because it's greater than ourselves. And so that is what God is inviting us to do. He wants his name made great. And he wants to raise up a people that are willing to stand in the gap. People that are willing to get to know him and then go and share that with those who don't know him. And then um, what's interesting, too, is, is this is a long time ago in history, but like I said, Scripture also tells us how the end is going to be through prophecy. And so in the book of Revelation, this has become my very favorite Scripture, not because it says anything warm and fuzzy to me, but because it helps remind me of the goal, of God's goal. It helps remind me of the end result. And this is what the picture God gives John, a picture of heaven in the end. This picture is yet to come. This is what he says. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And I want to point out this awesome picture. I used to think it was all about getting the masses saved, the most people. If the most people could know God, that's all that matters. And and it does say the number was too high for him to count, but what God, the picture God gives him is very specific. Every single tribe that exists, that is a lot of tribes. There are tribes out there with a hundred people or less. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation will be represented in heaven, worshiping God, giving him due glory. 
This is an amazing picture. God wants a kaleidoscope because when God created us, he put his image in us and he wants every different type of person represented in heaven for eternity worshiping him. And he wants his name made great, his name made great among the nations. And he has chosen us to deliver that message because we have had the privilege that we don't deserve to discover who he is. This is what God wants to accomplish. And to be honest, it's not really a suggestion because he didn't rescue us to give us these options and we can just kind of pick whatever. I mean, certainly we can, we have free will, but he rescued us for this purpose. So the question is, how do we participate in seeing this end fulfilled? And it will be fulfilled, don't get me wrong. Even if we fail, even if we decline to do our part, God will fulfill it, it's already promised. But to join his mission and his passion is a life worth living for. And so how do we do that? There's a lot of ways uh, to do that. I'm just going to run through a few briefly because not everyone's going to go right now at this point in their life to the nations. We heard from Doug and Pat White, and they're prepared to go. God has called them to go, and they're going to be doing that. Um, very shortly. But other than going, something else we can do is we can send goers. There are people that need to go, and if you're not aware, there's not big money to make as a missionary. In fact, it usually involves quitting your job and raising support so that you can go and live and do that. And so they, missionaries need money, they need support, they need finances, they need prayer support because they're going to be under difficult situations. So you can pray for them, and you can send them, or you can go yourself. The other one we don't hear very much, but I love and I think is so awesome, is we can welcome them. You know, God wants to reach the nations, but the nations are coming to us in our country. We have people coming here to go to school, to learn, and they plan to go back to their home country and influence people of their country. So you can interact with them while they're here and now, having an exchange student or other ways, and you're impacting the country they come from because they're going to go back possibly knowing the God that you know. And the last way, of course, is we can mobilize people. We can help people to know the truth. That's what I'm doing. I'm saying, I have learned this. It's empowered me. Let me share it with you so that you are empowered. That's called mobilizing. So you can be a part of any of these avenues, and you are actually participating in God's global mission for the nations. And I guarantee if you start somewhere, you will only move to do more and more because it fulfills you more than anything else. Because it's, it's God's mission. And there's lots of ways to do it. It doesn't necessarily mean leaving the country. For me personally, my husband North and I, uh, we've come to a place in our faith journey where we know we're going to go. We know we're called to go. And so uh, we're actually in the summer starting school for some literacy and linguistics training. Because we believe that every nation deserves to hear God's word. And we believe every language group deserves to know God's word in a language they can understand. So we'll be working with Bible translators in 2015, and we're raising support. That's what we're doing. That's our next step, but your next step may not be that. That's a big next step. It's take us years to get there. But what is your next step? Doug and Pat White, uh, their next step is to go short-term. They've been supporting financially and through prayer, and they say, God, we don't, we're missing the action. we got to get out there. And so they're going, and they're going to go to Mexico um, in February, actually, and they need a prayer and they need financial support. That's a way you can participate. They're willing to go down in this dark hole to help and rescue people, and they need people to stay up top and hold the rope. They need people to join them, to partner with them, so you can certainly give to them. That's one way. So there's a lot of ways, and I hope today, even if you're not moved to jump on a plane and go somewhere, I hope that you've discovered a little more of what God's heart is, and if you're unsure, go read and start asking the why questions yourself. Tell me what you find, 
And uh, I believe and trust that God will reveal himself to us, that that can dramatically change and affect the way that we live our life uh, in a way that's bigger than ourselves.